Turn, if you would, to the book of Proverbs. Although it's quite possible we actually won't get to the book of Proverbs today. (laughs) These things happen sometimes. We do have to finish up a little bit early today. There's a... uh, some marriage class or something in here afterwards and they have to reconfigure the room. Uh, They did it last week. They just neglected to tell me that I was supposed to finish so this mob ascended afterwards to try to reconfigure the room in time. We're going to talk about the book of Proverbs and I have no idea how long this is going to take. The question was asked just a while ago, are we going to do it topically or are we going to do it verse by verse? And the answer is, most definitely. (laughs) The last time I taught the book of Proverbs, I did it topically. And, in fact, I I drug out my old lessons uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I have a copy of the book of Proverbs. And every week, I would read the book of Proverbs with a different colored pencil, and I would mark all the verses that had to do with a particular topic. So I have a copy of the book of Proverbs that is very colorful because of all the colored pencils. Uh, That actually is the logical way to teach the book of Proverbs because there are a lot of themes that repeat themselves throughout the text. Since that's the logical way, we're not going to do it that way this time. We're actually going to start at the beginning and work through it verse by verse, and we're going to do that until it starts getting too repetitive, and then we'll go topical. Does that make sense? Because I do think it was probably arranged in this way for a particular reason. And while sometimes the connection between individual verses is a little odd, there probably is some connection, particularly for the first ten chapters of the book. Somewhere around chapter 11, it does get into the individual proverbs, the pithy sayings, if you will, that we are most familiar with. So we're going to start with verse 1, and we're going to work our way until we get tired. Okay? But before we do that, we are going to have an introduction lesson. And whenever you do an introduction lesson on an Old Testament book, it is always useful to set the book in the context in which it's written. So we're going to start by going back to the very beginning. Genesis. And we're going to cover the Old Testament up till the book of Proverbs. And we're going to look at it primarily from the aspect, from the perspective of the topics that lead us to the book of Proverbs. So we all know that in the book of Genesis, we begin with creation. The earth is created, and God declares it all to be good. Everything is right. But then something happens, the fall, and the world is no longer what it ought to be. Now this is important for us to remember because there are a lot of people today who mm, deny the reality of the fall. You know, basically we're all good, basically we all want to do the right thing, basically, well, it's somebody else's fault that bad things happen. Well, it's not somebody else's fault. There is a problem with the human heart that was brought about because of the fall. Why this is significant with regard to the book of Proverbs 
is that the book of Proverbs is going to tell us how to live in this world. There are those who think, well, the book of Proverbs would only work if the world were perfect. No, the book of Proverbs is not dealing with a perfect world. It is dealing with a world where there are wicked people, wicked people who want to do wickedness really just for the fun of it. It is a world of people who sin. It is a world of people who are slothful, who are angry, who are, you fill in your, perfect, your, your preferred vice, and it's in there somewhere. The book of Proverbs is going to tell us how to live in the world as it is. It isn't some Pollyanna pie in the sky in some other world you could live like this. It's going to deal with the real world. So we have the creation, we have the fall, and obviously you know that I'm skipping huge amounts of the book of Genesis, right? But we end up with the call of Abraham where God separates a people, a person to begin with, and his family from this fallen world. It's like, here's the world, it's fallen, you, Abraham, I'm going to take you, and I am going to have a covenant relationship with you and your family, with you and your descendants forever. Why is this significant? Because we're going to follow this path, and we're going to get down to King David, and then we're going to get to King Solomon, who wrote the book of Proverbs. King David, King Solomon are part of this covenant relationship. We are part of this covenant relationship. The book of Proverbs is going to tell us how to live our lives in a fallen world, in a covenant relationship with our Father. The book itself is, are the instructions of a father to his son. There is a relationship there. Why is this important? In the same way that we live in a world where people deny the reality of the fall, we live in a world where people deny the reality of an authority telling you this is how you ought to live your life. And God is going to tell us in the book of Proverbs, do this and your life will prosper. Don't do this, and your life will have problems. Now, you sit there, I sit here and think, okay, if it's that evident, we should be able to learn it by pure trial and error. I'll live part of my life this way, and if it doesn't work, then I'll switch back over to this way, and I'll do something different. I mean, if, it, if it's that evident, what works and what doesn't work, then I should be able to ignore the revelation of God and simply do it by trial and error. The problem is, you'll probably be dead before you figure it out. The Father is telling the Son, this is how you, live your, you ought to live your life, and if you don't, there's going to be consequences, and you may not survive the consequences. God, the Father in a covenant relationship with us, is telling us, this is how you ought to live your life. And if you don't, there's going to be consequences, 
and you might not survive the consequences. Let's keep going. From Genesis, we go to Exodus, where God calls his people out of Egypt, and he gives the law. Leviticus reminds us what it means to be holy. We have Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Numbers and Deuteronomy are more of the discussion of the covenant relationship between God and his people. A repetition of the law. And all this wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years where the nation of Israel didn't exactly want to live up to its side of the covenant. And finally in Joshua, we have Joshua leading the nation into the promised land and clearing out the inhabitants who were leading people astray. Now, they didn't, lead the, they didn't get rid of all of them. They were ordered to get rid of all of them, but they didn't. And what happened? Well, let's look ahead to the life of Solomon. And we see the effects of these foreign women, <clears throat> sorry, these foreign women leading Solomon astray. We'll talk about that in just a moment. That gets us to the book of Judges. If you remember, um, I guess it was Dr. Bailey several weeks ago had a sermon on the book of, on somebody, one of the judges, and he talked about this cycle. You remember the cycle? There are lots of different labels that you can attach to the different pieces of it, but everybody has the same chart. Basically, you have the people of God not doing what God wants them to do. They are turning away from the commands of God. They're doing things their own way. They are falling into apostasy. And that leads to servitude. Some group comes in and takes over the land of Israel. They could be the Philistines, the Moabites, one of those inhabitants that were not wiped out comes and puts the people into servitude. But the people pray to God because it's really bad. They don't like being under these people. So God graciously sends them a judge, a leader to lead them out of this problem. And they indeed have salvation. The problem is, that just leads back to apostasy. We read through the book of Judges, and you get this vision that this is happening like every year. You know, okay, it's January, we've got to go to apostasy. In actual fact, this is a 30, 40, 50 year cycle. So we go through, I don't know how many there were, 10 Judges, 11, 12 Judges in the book of Judges, and We're talking several, several hundred years as a group is saved, but then they forget about what God has done. They fall into apostasy. They are driven to servitude again. They pray to God, and the cycle repeats itself over and over again. Why is this important to the book of Proverbs? Well, Proverbs is going to tell us how to live our lives so we don't get into this cycle. Just stay away from it to begin with. You know, I believe in a linear view of history. By that I mean history is moving towards some goal. 
It is moving toward the second coming of Christ. But in that linear view of history, there are cycles because people do the same things over and over again. People respond to prosperity in a particular way. And then when things are bad, they respond in a particular way. And there's this appearance of cycles because people are responding the same way to the same situations that they always have. Now, something else is going to come out of this, though. Next, we have First and Second Samuel. And in First Samuel chapter 8, the people ask for a king. They're tired of these judges. Why did the people ask for a king? Everybody else had a king. Okay? Everybody else had a king. If we have a king, we'll be stable just like everybody else. Maybe. God intended to be the king of the nation of Israel. In fact, when the people come to Samuel and say, Samuel, we want a king... God tells Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They're rejecting my authority, not yours. So, they want a king. 1 Samuel 9-10, to 10, Saul becomes the king. Saul dies at the end. And in 2 Samuel 2, David becomes king. David, a man after God's own heart until Bathsheba shows up. Hmm? <laughs> I forgot to put the chapter there. Hmm. Oh, well. It's in there somewhere. You know the story. I always liked the verse that begins it where it says, at the time of year when kings go to war, David was at home. At the time of his life that David was supposed to be doing something, leading the people, David was not doing what David ought to be doing. He was at home. He saw Bathsheba bathing herself on the roof of a neighboring house. Now, at this point, there's all kinds of different discussions about whether Bathsheba knew what she was doing, whether she was a totally innocent party in all of this. Who knows? It doesn't matter. From the perspective of David, it doesn't matter. We're going to see this in Proverbs chapters 5 and 6 and maybe 4, where Solomon warns his son, stay away from other women because it will lead you astray. But, David calls for Bathsheba. Bathsheba comes over. They do their thing. Off comes a child. David arranges for Bathsheba's husband to be killed so that he can marry Bathsheba, and supposedly, it's all taken care of. You hope people don't do the math very well about when the baby shows up. Okay? 
But God knows. God sends Nathan the prophet. He confronts David. David, you're the bad guy. But David is a man after God's own heart. David repents. But remember, David's life was never the same after that. If you look at the history of the kingdom after that event, it's one family squabble after another with huge consequences for the nation of Israel. There are consequences for our actions. One of the things we will be discussing, probably not in the next couple of weeks, but at some point, because it's rather important, is the idea of the book of Proverbs and how it relates to grace. You start looking at the New Testament and you get this idea in your head, thank goodness it's all grace. And you know what? It is all grace. But that doesn't mean that sin does not have consequences. Sin has consequences if you're an unbeliever, and sin has consequences if you're a believer. David repented, God forgave him, but the consequences of his actions were still there. And, by the way, Bathsheba was Solomon's mother. So, first and second kings, and then we follow with first and second chronicles. We're not going to do first and second chronicles. Why? Because it's going to talk about the kingdom after Solomon dies. And we'll have a brief discussion about that in just a moment. Solomon, his life shows up in first kings chapters 1 to 11. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Now, if you're real astute, you... Notice that we we, uh, missed Ruth up there at the beginning. As we discuss the chronology, you know, Ruth is just kind of a, a story on the side. You know, in the midst of the judges and the rise and fall of empires, here's the story about Ruth, who is a Moabite woman and marries and her husband dies and she comes back to... But it's rather significant to our story. Why? Because Ruth marries Boaz, and if I remember correctly, Boaz and Ruth are David's grandparents. Well, with a few more grands thrown in. (laughs) What does that tell us? God called Abraham out of all the people of the world, and said, I'm going to have a covenant relationship with you. Ruth is not of that family. But God continually calls people who we might view as being outside, and he calls them and brings them in to the covenant relationship. Ruth and Boaz, as was pointed out, become the ancestors of David, Solomon, dot, 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 Jesus. God works in wonderful and mysterious ways. 1 Kings chapter 1, 
We're going to talk about the life of Solomon. Solomon is the author of most of the book of Proverbs. Not all of it, but most of it. It begins at the very first verse, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David. We're told who did it. Now, we're also told later in the book that some scribes under Hezekiah compiled some of it. Basically, we see that Solomon had this boatload of Proverbs. And through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these were sliced and diced into what we have today as the book of Proverbs. We also know that when we get down to the end, the last two or three chapters are actually written by other people who are given to us by name. Lemuel wrote this. Okay? Now, this should not distract us from the book of Proverbs. The fact that the Holy Spirit guided people to make a selection of the Proverbs of Solomon. It is still the Holy Spirit working through the process to protect his word. Chapter 1 of 1 Kings, there is a power struggle. David is dying. He's on his deathbed. One of his sons declares himself king. Bathsheba comes to David on his deathbed and says, Didn't you promise the kingdom to Solomon? Yeah, I did. So there is this struggle back and forth. And in chapter 2, Solomon becomes king. He was very young. He was probably not the first choice of the people. But he becomes king. Chapter 3, God appears to Solomon and says, I was with your father David, I'm going to be with you. What is it that you want from me? And Solomon gives a fabulous answer, which basically boils down to this. I'm in way over my head. Please give me wisdom. That's a loose translation, but it's probably pretty accurate. Question. How many of you have ever been in a situation where you think you're in over your head. If you've never been there, there's something wrong with you. You need to get out more often. I have, as you're well aware, eight kids. I have no clue how I got to this point. Well, maybe a little clue. There's this constant barrage of questions and situations that have to be dealt with and just life. Back to the very beginning, Genesis. The world was created and it was perfect. It was good. And the fall and the world was not the way it was meant to be. Everyone, everyone living in the world today who has any interaction with anybody else 
is going to experience times when they go, God, I don't have a clue what it is I'm supposed to be doing right now. Please help me. Unfortunately, what we oftentimes do is we go read the latest self-help book or we go turn on Oprah. Wait, she's not on anymore. What's the current replacement for Oprah? Huh? Ellen? Oh, gosh. Dr. Oz? Who in the world is Dr. Oz? He's the know-it-all? Go ask the latest guru. And you know what? God has given people wisdom. Maybe you do need to talk to a professional at times. I'm not saying anything negative about that. But when you're over your head in the problems and situations at life, you should be going to God and seeking his wisdom. He's usually kind of way down on the list. Usually, we wait until we've tried all the other possible solutions, and they didn't work, and then we'll try God. You know? When you've tried everything else you can try, then go pray about it. Why do we do that? But God asked Solomon, what do you want me to give you? And Solomon said, I want wisdom. God was so pleased with the answer that he says, I'll give you wisdom, and I'll give you wealth, and I'll give you influence. It's all there. You answered wisely. I might add, as we're going to see in the book of Proverbs, that we see this pattern repeated over and over again. Why did Solomon say, give me wisdom? Because he had a little bit of wisdom. What we're going to see is that the wise will seek more wisdom. They're all leaving me. They do it every week. The wise will seek more wisdom and receive more wisdom. And then they'll seek more and they'll seek more. The foolish person isn't seeking wisdom in the first place. And we're going to talk about the fool in just a moment. Chapter 4 of 1 Kings is a list of Solomon's uh, officials. Chapter 5 is the preparation to build the temple. If you remember, David wanted to build a permanent house for God. And God said, no, you're not the man for this job, but your son will do it. So Solomon builds the temple, then he builds his palace, the temple is dedicated, there's this huge ceremony, you know, if you're ever in trouble, come to the temple, if God, you know, God is promising great things to watch over his temple. Solomon had other building projects, he was building palace cities here and there and the other, and you begin to see problems in the life of Solomon, Basically, Solomon was employing slave labor. He was basically selling off parts of, well, groups of his people as slave labor to other people to provide 
building material for his huge building projects. Chapter 10 discusses Solomon's riches. I mean, you start doing the math, because it mentions in there, you know, this year he received umpteen thousand talents of gold. You start doing the math, that's a boatload of gold. What's the current price of gold? I haven't seen it in a couple of weeks. 1700 It's a boatload of money, okay? This guy was loaded. I was having a discussion the other day with one of my kids. We were watching some really bad movie, and they were looking for the lost treasure of Solomon, okay? Because there is this brief mention of him getting wealth from Ophar? Is that the place? There's all kinds of books, cheap pulp fiction, talking about getting the wealth. They find this place and they get this wealth. We don't know where it is. Someplace he was mining boatloads of money, gold, and jewels. Then there's chapter 11, where it talks about his, I wouldn't say his love life, <laughs> his political marriages. Basically, he needed an alliance with this tribe, so he'd marry one of them. He needed an alliance with this kingdom, so he'd marry one of them. He needed, and he ended up with 700 wives and 300 concubines. Can anybody tell me the technical definition between a wife and a concubine? It doesn't matter to me. That's a lot of women. That's a whole lot of women. And there's a problem. Because it tells us that these foreign women, the women that Joshua was commanded to tell the people, don't marry them, that these foreign women were leading Solomon astray to the point where Solomon began to offer sacrifices to foreign gods. And here we come up with one of the big issues that I have with the book of Proverbs. Because at first glance, it didn't work. Here we have the wisest man on the planet... We're going to have some verses here in just a moment that are going to tell us how wise Solomon is. And all that wisdom did not keep him from falling into the temptations of lust, of accommodation, of materialism. If you go read the book of Ecclesiastes, you begin to see Solomon discussing his life where he says, I tried all the pleasures of this world. And the conclusion in the good old King James, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I tried knowledge. 
I tried seeking all the knowledge of the world, and the end result, good old King James, vanity of vanities. I tried this, I tried that, I tried this, and there was nothing under the sun, is the phrase that is used. In this earth, in and of itself, you cannot find your total completion, your total salvation. What was the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes? Love God and do what he tells you to do. Solomon tried to have it both ways. He tried to be the wisest man in the world, and he tried to try everything else, and it didn't work. What is the lesson to us? There is more to wisdom than just head knowledge. If the wisdom is not applied, then it is worthless. As we work through the book of Proverbs, as we go through and we go, ah, that's a wonderful verse. Let me tell you what your first tendency is going to be. Okay? I know this for a fact because it's my first tendency. You ready for this? You read this wonderful proverb and you go, hmm, my son really needs that. My neighbor really needs that. That person who lives down the street, that politician who I disagree with, they really need this. And you know what? They probably do. But the reality is, you probably need it also. It is going to be your natural tendency as we work through the book of Proverbs to start looking at other people and telling yourself, oh, I wish Joe Blow was here. He could use this. Oh, yeah. We listen to sermons that way all the time. And at the end of chapter 11, Solomon dies. Just to t remind us of the rest of the story, once again, there's a power struggle. The kingdom is divided. There are the ten tribes of the north, Israel, the two tribes of the south, Judah, and in essence, they're never combined again. Eventually, the Assyrians take over Israel, and the Babylonians take over Judah, and you get all the rest of the Old Testament. I found a photograph of uh, Solomon. Oh, wait. This is a painting from uh, the 1400s that makes Solomon look like he lived in the 1400s. I don't know. First Kings chapter 4. Verse 29 to 34, with some pieces of it left out. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight, and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sands on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the east, and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. That was high praise. You know, at Christmas time, we talk about the wise men coming from the east. That was a reputation they had for wisdom. 
He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He described plant life. He taught about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. God is going to use Solomon, flawed as he was, God is going to use Solomon to teach us how we ought to live our lives. And he's going to do that through the book of Proverbs. You still in the book of Proverbs? The Proverbs actually begins with its own introduction, which says this. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance. For understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Solomon begins by telling us what it is we can obtain by studying the book of Proverbs. And next week, we're going to break that apart, and we're going to look at it passage by passage. But before we do that, I wanted to talk about one word in particular today, because we're going to see it throughout the book of Proverbs, and that is the word wisdom. This definition is taken from the ESV Study Bible, and it simply says, wisdom is skill, particularly the skill of choosing the right course of action for the desired result. The skill in the art of godly living. We're going to have different, more definitions of wisdom as we look at this over the weeks to come. But basically it is the idea that you know how to do what you're doing well. In particularly, in particularly with regard to the book of Proverbs, it is living a godly life. You can talk about a wise sailor, someone who understands the boat, who understands the mechanics of running the boat, who understands the water, the waves, the wind, and he is wise, he is skillful at doing that. We can talk about people being wise in a particular profession, in a particular discipline, and that's okay. But in the book of Proverbs, wisdom is inseparable from godly living. It is going to tell us that there is no true wisdom apart from, well, we saw it in verse 7, the fear of the Lord. It says it is the beginning of knowledge, and later in the book it's going to tell us it is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom is going to instruct us on how to live our lives. Now, we're going to see in a couple of weeks that this wisdom has a name. And what is the name? It's Jesus. 
God's word embodied and given to us who leads us and guides us and tells us how to live our lives. The cast of characters. If you've ever read Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, which is an allegory where you have individuals whose names, well, their names are what they are. Okay? We're going to see this throughout the book of Proverbs, where we'll talk about the sluggard. We'll talk about this person. We'll talk about that person. But there are three that pop up regularly that we need to remind ourselves of. The first is obviously the wise. The wise are those who are doing what they ought to do. But what we will see is that it does not imply perfection. It implies that you're on the right path. Because the wise need more wisdom, and that reminds them they need more wisdom, which reminds them they need more wisdom. It isn't that they have arrived. It means that they're on the right path. I've used the illustration in here before. I was actually a math major in college, okay? And I know distinctly I got to the point where every math class I took simply reminded me how little math I knew because it simply opened the door to another room of things I didn't know. And that's the way wisdom is. As I learn more, I enter the next room and I go, wow, look at all that. And then you enter the next and you go, wow, look at all that. Wisdom is not perfection. It simply means you're on the right path. The opposite of that is the fool. We need to remember biblically what the fool is. The fool is the person who intentionally rejects the wisdom of God. The wisdom is over there, and I'm going to turn and look this way, and I am going to, first off, I'm going to say all kinds of bad things about that. I'm going to turn my back on it. I am going to reject it. It is active rejection of the truth. That's why we see in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus condemns the person who calls someone a fool. To call someone a fool is not just saying they're ignorant. It's saying that they're actually outside of the covenant because they've turned their backs on the truth. The fool hate knowledge and wisdom. In between these two, we see the simple. And we'll see them talked about repeatedly in the book of Proverbs. Some refer to it as the naive. This is what I would refer to as a child. A child just doesn't know. You tell the child to do some task, and they go, I don't know how to do that. And you go, you're right. You don't know how to do it. The child can become the wise, or the child can become the fool. Now, what is the verse? Foolishness is wrapped up in the... Because the seeds of the foolish are in all of us. That's part of our sin nature. The simple need to be instructed. 
The fool needs to be... Well, we'll have a discussion about that. Of what to do with the fool. So, the goal of all of this is to pursue the wisdom. Conclusions, God gives wisdom to those who ask for it. Solomon asked for it, and he got it. Over in the New Testament, we will be told, if you want wisdom, if you lack wisdom, ask God and he will give it to you. Knowing wisdom and living wisely are not the same thing. You can be the smartest person on this planet and still make really, really stupid choices. God promises great blessings for those who follow the path of wisdom. He just does. So, if I can leave you with one picture, it's simply this. Today and every day, stretching out before you are two paths. There's the path of wisdom and there's the path of foolishness. Every decision you make, every action that you do, demonstrates which of these paths you are on. One leads to good things and one leads to bad. Yes? As far as wisdom goes and as far as head knowledge goes, could you make a comparison between somebody who has a degree in accounting, they're very brilliant, they understand numbers Mm -hmm. real well, but then they go out and get in debt and make all kinds of bad decisions? Bad decisions. Exactly. And finally, your assignment is to read the Proverbs of the day. I don't know if you've ever done this before. How many Proverbs are there? Chapters? 31. What is the most number of days there are in a month? 31. What is today's date? The 29th. Go home and read Proverbs 29. And tomorrow you'll read? Today's the 30th? Today's the 30th. Very good. So today, read chapter 30. Tomorrow, you'll read chapter 31. And what will you read the next day? Chapter 1. Basically, you'll work through the book of Proverbs every month. And on a lot of months, you won't have to deal with the virtuous woman at the end. Because that's if the month doesn't have 31 days. Yes, ma'am. I have no idea. I don't think I've read it. For the book of Proverbs? I don't think I've read the book of... I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I'm ignorant. I'm simple. (laughs) But I'm teachable. (laughs) That's what you think. Let's... Huh? Oh, I wouldn't go there either. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you have shown us how to live our lives. I pray, Lord, that in the weeks to come, you would make all of us teachable, that we would all be open to your word, and that we would all, by your grace, choose to follow the path of wisdom. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.